Life's so full on. I've been working on this deck for ages. These steaks don't cook themselves, you know. Life's good with a Trex deck. Composite decking made from 95% recycled materials that won't rot, stain or fade. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. your sporting life with Peter Donegan. And it is great to have your company for another 2018 edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of uh, a very special young Australian. This young man had the world at his feet when he stood on the dais at the Olympic Games in London going back just around five or six years ago. And then a tragic accident would change his life forever. His name is Sam Willoughby and he joins us on the line from the United States. Sam, it's good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you, Peter. Thanks for having me on. How do we find you, mate? How's life in general for you? And in particular, the first question I want to ask you, this is probably the most important question I'm going to ask you for the entire hour of our program. How's married life? It's fantastic. So um, life is uh, life is good. It's different. It's a little bit different, obviously, than, than what I had planned at 27. But um, my wife and I, Elise, got married on New Year's Eve about a month ago. And... Um, it is uh, everything's happy days, so very thankful for the people I have in my life right now. We'll talk more about what has transpired in your life and the circumstances that have changed so dramatically for you, but let's talk about Elise and let's talk about how important she has been because you find yourself now in a situation where you are classified as a, a tetraplegic, which is the new term for quadriplegic, but Elise is not only your wife, but she's been your rock in lots of ways ever since the accident and before that too. Absolutely, but um, I think it takes a you know a tragic event just to re- like that, and you realise just how special you know someone so close to you is. And Elise has just been that you know rock solid person that's been by my side through uh, the best and and the worst of times. And um, you know I sent I gave her a note on our wedding day that said that she saved my life and and I think that that's true just because it it just gave me so much to fight for when tragedy struck and it gave me a purpose and um I just I I wanted to you know I wanted to be alive with her and I wanted to recover as much as I could and live the best quality of life I could um with her and um that's yeah so she's just very special person and um, someone I, I cherish very closely and am now very proud and honoured to call her my wife. It wasn't going to be that way, though, straight after the accident, was it? Because you went through that period, I think I'm right in saying, where one of the first things you said to Elise after your accident was, you don't have to do this. You don't have to be with me because of the the perceived cross that she would have to bear after your injury. Is that right, that you said to her, you, you don't have to go along with this if you don't want to? Yeah, yeah, that was, sort of the, that was probably the first thing I said to her when she arrived at the hospital. Um, I just, I don't know, I just didn't, I didn't want to be a burden on her life. I didn't want to, I had enough love and respect for her that I, I didn't under, I didn't know how bad my situation was at that point and, I just, she'd been through so much in life and I just didn't, 
already with she lost her mum to cancer in 2014 and I just I just didn't want her to to struggle with me you know and um and she just held my hand and basically said I'm not going anywhere and we'll get through this together and um yeah we're as, as, as happy as ever thankfully that's something that we don't even need to consider now and so you had the wedding to look forward to but there was also a goal within that wedding and that was that you said that you wanted to walk down the aisle I think you were supposed to be married in April of last year it eventually finished up being on New Year's Eve what was the ceremony like and what sort of a moment was it for you when you were able to stand at the wedding yeah, the ceremony was amazing. It was um, it was the most, uh, the most emotion I've ever felt in in anything in my life. Just you know, all these just tears of joy and excitement and nerves and the good nerves of just like it was like a closing the, a, a chapter kind of and um, and just starting a great life. Really, it was like almost like a new a new life in a way and just standing at that at the uh at the altar and waiting for Elise to come down it was um the biggest achievement in my life to date and I just it was Elise was told me from day one she was going to marry me whatever the situation was you know she wasn't like she was saying oh you know I need you to stand or this or that that was something I wanted to do you know I wanted us to be able to have wedding photos where you know, it it looks as it as it once did, and um, and I wanted to give her the honour of walking down the aisle and holding her hand, and you know all those things that I felt she deserved, and um, I practiced for months and months on end, and I must say the standing was the hardest it ever has been on that on that day, just because there was so much emotion and joy, and um, yeah, we just stood there and smiled and said the vows and then it was a slow walk but um shuffled our way out of there and it was yeah amazing it must have been an extraordinary moment but it didn't stop at the standing sam because i'm told that you actually managed to dance at the reception yeah yeah that, and that was probably that that's probably my best memory from the wedding was the dance because we just i stood up and of it and at least we held each other and just and danced to um, the Ed Sheeran song, Perfect. And it just, looking at each other in the eyes for those three to five minutes or however long the song was, and it just, it was a room of about 200 people, but it just felt like it was the two of us. And it just, the words of the song just matched our relationship so perfectly, and it just tapped off a, a perfect day. Uh, we find you in San Diego now. Um, what's day-to-day life like for you now, Sam? Yeah, so right now it's I'm still doing my therapy six days a week. So I have a setup at the house um, with all the equipment that we need, and um, I have a therapist who I've been working with from since first of January in 2017 when I got home from hospital. Um, so he comes to the house for two hours every day and we uh, go through a range of exercises and things standing and a lot of uh, you know core exercises and just trying to regain as much function as I can um, and then I'm also 
doing quite a bit of coaching in BMX now. So I coach Elise and another Australian female who's always been Elise's training partner and was my teammate at uh, the London and Rio Olympics, Lauren Reynolds. Um, and then also two guys, one of them, Nick Long, who was in my wedding, and uh, Sean Gaines. So we have a group of four, uh, two guys, two girls, and um, I uh, was always pretty passionate about training and coaching was something I would have gone into, I think, regardless of what happened with my injury uh, when I was done racing. And so I've uh, picked that up and, yeah, and with them pretty much every day um, at at least one of their sessions and then doing video review and, you know, putting the next steps together and um, trying to uh, go down that pathway a little bit. Um, and then outside of that, I still enjoy going to the gym quite a bit. So I go to the gym almost almost every day at night, um, just with a yeah, either with a friend or a personal trainer, and just to do, do a lot of upper body stuff. And I really enjoy lifting weights and getting strong. So um, yeah, I do that do that quite a bit, and it's a good little release for me, and feels kind of normal, you know, doing normal training like I was used to, as opposed to the meticulous. Day to day that rehab is, and from a physical sense, Sam, how much improvement have you had from just after the accident? And we'll talk about what happened later in the program. How much have you improved from that moment to this moment right now? Yeah, well, I still, you know, I use the wheelchair day- daily. Um, I'm still relying on the wheelchair, um, but my upper body function is pretty much a hundred percent. You know, I lift lift normal weights and full hand function my left hand has a little bit less grip strength than normal so if I do like a pull-up or something I need to wear like a, a glove sometimes to just help grip as safety uh, but for day-to-day you know tasks um, my upper body is yeah fully functional so that wasn't at, at the time of the injury I was my injury was at this level c6 so all four limbs were affected, and I didn't, you know, I didn't have any triceps. I didn't have really any hand function, a little bit of arm movement. And then my legs, I, I don't have any, I wouldn't say, functional movement to the point where I can, you know, kick my leg out and show you, but I can perform tart, like I can stand, um, I can stand in parallel bars, I can um, stand with a walker for short periods, um, I can hands and knees, I can crawl um, like a baby, uh, <laughs> that hip function and trunk stability. So those are kind of the steps that I that I work on day to day to try to keep, keep building and um, getting more and more back. It is a, a tragic story in lots of ways, but it's a very uplifting story. And uh, after we take a break, Sam, I want to find out where it all begin or all began, I should say, in Adelaide all those years ago and the progress to being on the dais at the Olympic Games. Sam Willoughby is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. More with Sam after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And what a pleasure it is to have Olympic silver medalist Sam Willoughby as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Sam, I said I wanted you to take us back to where it all began, and that was in Adelaide. Uh, tell us about your early life in the city of churches. Yeah, so born and raised in Adelaide. Um, as a young fella, was a pretty keen footy player, so I was always always sort of had a footy in my hand and 
um, was uh, running around the front yard commentating as Bruce McAvaney pretending I was Andrew McLeod. And, <laughs> um, yeah, loved footy, and uh, but I also always had a bike, and um, that was kind of my transport with my brother around the neighbourhood and um, on school holidays. That was how we got to friends' houses and that kind of thing. So we had a passion for riding and, and footy, and um, we're always active wherever it was up, you know, up the river. We had a boat growing up, the family did, so we were pretty keen water skiers and um, just a very active family, I would say. And um, around, I want to say it was in 97, I was probably around six, we uh, got a letter in the school bulletin at Hallett Cove South Primary saying to come and try BMX on Friday night, BMX racing at Happy Valley. And so my brother and I took our bikes out there and... Um, it was a rainy night, and we uh, raced around, and we actually ended up getting first and second, and thought it was a pretty cool sport. So uh, we kept doing that. So it was, it was uh, Friday night BMX at Happy Valley, and Saturday morning uh, footy for the primary school. Where did you play when you were playing footy? Yeah, so I played for the primary school, Hallett Cove South, and then club footy. We went to play for Flagstaff Hill Falcons. Um, and I played there right up until I played in 2008 was the last year I played um, as an under-16, yeah. What position? Were you any good? I was a, I was always a midfielder. And then later on in the career when I was doing BMX a little more seriously than footy, um, I was, wasn't so keen on running as much as I was. I was turning into a bit more of a sprinter. And so then I moved uh, into a forward pocket or half forward flank and... Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I, I was always, you know, on, on the team, on the, on the teams, and um, did a bit of footy down at Glenelg and some development squads and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I loved footy and really enjoyed it. I didn't have a lot of finesse, I would say, but uh, was pretty hard at the ball and um, uh, enjoyed to have a crack at a goal. <laughs> All right, let's move back to your love, your passion, BMX racing. Um, you talked about going down with your brother and all of a sudden you finished first and second. When did you think that this would be something that you might be pretty good at and that might actually get you onto the world stage? When was your first inkling that you were you were pretty handy at this? It was probably a couple of years later when I was around, I would say, eight. Um, I started reading all the magazines and then... Seeing that uh, some Australians at the time were over in America and everything in the magazines that you'd see looked just bigger and better over there. And um, and I thought that, that sounds pretty good to me. And so I remember mum and dad always tell the story that I told them I was going to move to America and race and I didn't need to get a job. Um, so I think it was pretty early on that I'd seen it as something that I felt I could I could do or wanted to do um, and I was a pretty driven young fella so I think I enjoyed the individual aspect of it in that it was it was all on my shoulders and I could um, you know take it as far as as you know little as I wanted to um, and and at that age you know at you know 8 to 14 um, you know footy and that kind of thing it's it's more, you know, you take it serious, but it's recreational. It's just you're playing for the school and, you know, training once a week. And, and I wanted to do more than that. You know, I was on my bike every morning, every night. And, you know, we were racing for trophies every week. And I think that kind of drew me in, like, 
there was more success in um, in BMX on a on a weekly basis. So it was like I got pretty attached to that. I think. So eventually, it led to you becoming the world junior champion at the age of seventeen, and to make this sport a career for yourself, you had to make the move. You talked about that move that you told your parents about. I'm going to go and live in the States. It's a long way from Little Adelaide to the United States. You probably arrived there with little more than a bike, a backpack, and a few dollars in the bank account. Yeah, that was about it. I remember told mum and dad I wanted to go there after I won the Junior Worlds in China in 2008. And um, and they said, oh, if you can you know, save up some money, you can, you can go. And I don't know if they thought I would or not, but... Ended up getting a couple of little side jobs and saved up enough money to get a cheap ticket on China Airlines or something. I went <laughs> via Taiwan, like a super long flight via Taiwan and or Taiwan, and um, eventually landed in LA. And yeah, pretty much had a bike and some clothes and um, and a big dream. So, what did you do for accommodation? Because if you got nothing much in the bank account, you have to have somewhere to stay. So, where were your digs in the early days when you got there? Yeah, so BM, the good thing about BMX is that it is like a big family, and um, I'd already, you know, when I won the Worlds in China, I'd linked up with some some friends, or you know, US riders at the World Championships, and they were pretty open to me coming. To, so I just was kind of bouncing around with family's couches, and um, when I first got there, I stayed in a town called Wrightwood in uh, in California with a family. Uh, their son Chris Fox was a couple of years older than me, and um, they took me in. and And by that point, I'd met Elise, um, and she'd somehow convinced her parents to let me come. and You told them, you know, there's an Australian boy that is going to come and train with me. And they were kind of her, parents, her dad tells the story now. He was kind of like, okay, this seems a bit bit off, but uh, anyway. <laughs> so they somehow she somehow she convinced her parents, and I was able to go into the family home and ended up becoming really close with the family and then obviously dating Elise and um, and was, yeah, I guess pretty, from pretty early on was, was uh, kind of in, they took me in and um, was with them and then it was probably about a year later I eventually, after getting my first sponsor, rented an apartment in San Diego. And then the progress continued. Another World Junior Championship, a Senior Championship followed in 2012, and that was not long before London 2012. I had the pleasure of being there. It was an amazing Olympic Games. It must have been such a thrill just simply to be part of the vibe in that great city. It was an extraordinary couple of weeks in London. Oh, it was. London was, was amazing. And that was my first Olympics, so you don't really... I don't think you understand how good it was until I went to the second one in Rio and then you you look back now and they did such a great job and obviously you know the Brits being mad sporting people like Australia it um they just put on a great show and all the facilities were state of the art and it just it just flowed really well and um was definitely a fantastic event to be a part of obviously you would have liked to have been standing on the top step of the dais but here you are with a silver medal around your neck. Did that make all the hard work that you'd been through, all the sacrifices that you had to leave your home and to go to another country, did that make it all worthwhile at that moment? It did, but I would say that, you know, when I set out on this journey, the dream was to win a U.S. American title because BMX wasn't in the Olympics. So my goal was to win a professional title in America, and then the Olympics came about... um, 
sort of later down the track and I knew I wasn't going to be old enough to go in Beijing and um, and then London come around and that was kind of in the prime of my career and I don't I would say I didn't really realize how special it was until I was probably standing on that podium and looking out at the people and you know seeing the you know the Union Jack and the, you know the kangaroo and the emu on on your green and gold tracksuit and um, and then you realize just how special that moment is and um, and as every day goes on and you realize how special an Olympic medal is and um, it's something that everyone in the world recognizes. And I'm sure there was a burning desire from that point when you stood there on the second step of the dais that one day you wanted to stand on the top step. So four years down the track after a couple more world championships, you arrive in Rio what were your hopes like going into Rio? Because a lot of people had you stamped as the gold medalist in waiting. Yeah, going into Rio, there was one one thing on my mind, and that was the gold medal. And I showed up in Rio in, you know, 2016 was a, a weird year in that I, I tore my ACL in March, and I didn't have time, obviously, to get it, surgery on it and just kind of push through and found ways around it and working with some great people at Cycling Australia, rehabbed it and did everything I needed to do. And by the time it came, you know, uh, middle middle of August when we were in Rio, I was absolutely in the best shape of my life. And every, you know, every training record I've ever had, I'd, I'd killed it and showed up in Rio, won every lap leading up to the final and was top qualifier and, um, yeah, that's that's the one that got away. Just came up a little bit short on the first jump and hung my back wheel up on the landing and lost all my speed and uh and that was that and it was uh yeah, pretty devastating moment I would say because that was it was just everything going up there, you know, apart from the injury with the ACL that was the preparation was flawless and um did everything right on the day and just you know, made that little error at the sort of at the 12th hour and that's all it takes and it was um yeah pretty shattering but um you know i would find out only weeks later that uh you know it was it was just a race and there's there's more to life (laughs) yeah and just going back to that acl injury those footballers that you admired tony modra and andrew mcleod they would have been marveling at at your recuperative powers an acl in march and here you are in the best shape of your life in august footballers can't do that how did you do it no well i guess it's a little harder with footy in that there's a lot of lateral movement and cycling there's not a lot of impact and it's a pretty um straight up and down motion with the pedal stroke and um i had a brace on and the fortunate thing was that I completely tore the ACL like there was nothing left, so I didn't have a lot of pain. They were to sort of wear the brace and do quite a bit of therapy and change my training a little bit, but for the most part, I didn't have any pain on the bike. And just finally about Rio, if there was to be a consolation from the disappointment that you had from your race, at least you've got matching silver medals in the family now because Elise won silver in Rio. Yep, she did. She did fantastic, and I... um. I was out the back warming up during her race and I, I knew that she was sort of one of the favourites going into the final as well and I just, I didn't watch it. I didn't, I, she she had a very disappointing London and I had to race 30 seconds after her so I didn't, I didn't really want to know what had happened but um, I, when I came up to the top of the start here, I seen her hugging people and that kind of thing down the finish line so I knew I'd gone 
it had gone pretty well. And, um, yeah, was was very happy for her. Well, as you said, that was a great moment for you. It was a disappointing moment in your final, but things were about to be put in perspective just a few short weeks later. And we'll talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break. Sam Willoughby is my very special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives every day of the year. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And my guest is Olympic silver medalist Sam Willoughby. Sam, we talked about London. We talked about Rio. It was only a few short weeks after Rio. September the twenth, uh, September the tenth, twenty sixteen, where your life changed forever. You were at the local track in San Diego. Tell us your recollections of that day. Yeah, it was just a Saturday afternoon. Um, it was actually a sort of recovery day for me, and I just was going to go out and have a bit of a ride around the track and just play on my bike, really, and on a track that I'd ridden every day for the past eight years. And I was, at that point, sorry, six years. Um, but, yeah, I was just out there just doing root, a routine warm-up and came into a rhythm, what we call a rhythm section where there's a bunch of little jumps really close together, and part of my warm-up was always to go through there on my back wheel, and it was kind of a, you know, a little balance thing for me and when I would go through the whole section on my back wheel it kind of told me that I was ready to train and everything was balanced and feeling good and firing and that was kind of my little thing I did every time I went out there and was doing that and just overcorrected and basically what we call looped out and I just put too much weight over the back of my bike and I was going pretty quick and went up into the air and um, basically went into a backflip and came straight down onto the top of my head and um, broke my neck. I'm sure you'd had falls before. It's part of your trade. But did you know straight away that this was a bad one? I remember hitting the ground and thinking, like I'd flipped off the back of my bike many times in my career. And I remember hitting the ground and thinking I should be I should be winded, like, because every time you flip off the bat, you slap your back and it knocks the wind out of you. And I remember thinking, I should, why aren't I winded? And then I came, sort of came to and realized I couldn't, it felt like my, I couldn't feel my legs and it felt like my legs were way off in the distance. And that was sort of when I realized something was wrong. Um, and at that point, I just tried to lay still and... Um, and sort of waited until help arrived, and um, and then it wasn't too long later that at that point, you know, they were running through all the checks and asking, you know, squeezing my feet and asking if I could feel it, and I couldn't, asking me to try to wiggle my legs, toes, anything, and I couldn't. Um, and then they sort of did the hand squeeze test, and I believe the first time I squeezed the the parent that came down's hand, I squeezed it. And then they readed that they were doing these checks constantly. And then it was only a couple of minutes later that then my arms went away. And then I really panicked. And then I realized the situation and what was going on. And uh, and it's a pretty scary and lonely place when you're, you know, laying in the sun on, the, on a BMX track and motionless. And I just, at that point, just, tried to remain still and listen to the you know the people around me that were talking to me and trying to you know 
not let me drop, you know, fade out with shock or, you know, just telling me to breathe and, um, you know, giving me positive words and just waiting for help to arrive, basically. You talked about the loneliness of this, Sam. In this circumstance, time is of the essence. They needed to get you to hospital quickly and they needed to do something about it quickly to see whether there was anything that they could do to make this better. But you were by yourself. Have you ever felt more lonely in your life than you did at that moment at the hospital? Yeah, at the hospital, no. I, at the track, I, my close friend, Tyler Brown, who was in my wedding with me and uh, his wife was in one of Elisa's bridesmaids, they, they were at the track but they weren't allowed to come on the helicopter because they weren't family. Um, and then when I got to the hospital, they weren't allowed to come in. Tyler eventually ended up sneaking in or saying he was my brother eventually and got, got himself back there. But, yeah, it was a pretty... It was just a scary, lonely place in that I'd never... I'd, at that point, I'd never been under the knife. Um, you know, I'd never had surgery. Obviously, I had my ACL injury, but I didn't do surgery. Um, and then to be racing, the scariest moment was coming off the helicopter and I remember them being on a bed and them racing me through the hospital and, you know, there was a lot of panic and you know, franticness and, um, I remember they were, they said, we're going to the, we're going to do an MRI and they're rushing me down the halls and there was a female nurse that sort of held my hand and, um, she, she could tell I was pretty frightened, obviously, and I think she knew she knew I was by myself. Um, Elise was in Minnesota at some post-Olympic functions, and Emily and everyone was in Australia. Um, so she was just kind of being there for me and talking to me, and, and I asked her at that point, I said, um, I said, am I dying? And she said, well, you have a, you have a neck have a severe neck injury and we don't know the situation and that was and at that point I remember being really frantic and panicking and that kind of thing and then when she said that for some reason I kind of I almost went um in a way it was like I don't know it was just the brain's way of just I don't know what it was but I it almost was just like a moment of silence and I just I realized the magnitude of the situation and it just, my body just kind of went calm and I just, it was just like, all right, what's the next process to try to fix this? And the next thing was to slide into an MRI machine for 45 minutes, which is, anyone has been in MRI machines knows how claustrophobic they are, but a hundred times worse when you're in there with absolutely no movement and you've just been told that, you know, basically they didn't know my life situation. And um, I remember just asking that nurse, you know, you need to talk over the, the PA into the into the uh, MRI room this whole time. Like, I can't be left here in silence. And um, so she was really good. She talked to me the whole time and just kept good thoughts going through my head. And, yeah. In that circumstance, it would be natural, especially in that claustrophobic environment, even when the nurse is talking to you, to be sitting there and thinking, why me? Did that thought cross your mind? Not from memory, because I don't... I still didn't understand... Like, they'd explain things to me. I knew it was bad. Obviously, I was motionless. I was... 
you know, they'd said about the neck injury. But I don't know about shock, but I didn't have pain. I just, I didn't understand the situation yet. And, and everything in my life to that point had been fixable. And I just, I, I just felt like it, I knew it was bad, but I just felt it just, I felt like it was going to be fixable. Like everything at that point had been fixable. And I never got to the point yet where I was really understood the magnitude. And then after the MRI, I was back in the waiting or like in the, ICU based, the ICU little stall with the curtain around it and a surgeon came in and he he said to me to close my eyes and tell me what he was doing and, and I said, oh, you're squeezing my right toe. So at that point, by then, I could feel him squeeze my right toe and then he said, okay, we're got, you've, you've compressed your spinal cord and we got to go to surgery now. And I was kind of like, okay, well what's the risk? Uh, that was my first question was, what's the risk? Because I was kind of, you know, I I just had my ACL injury and I was like, well, you know, maybe I don't need to go to surgery and I don't have anyone here to help me make this decision or understand the situation. And, and he said, well, the, you know, the risk is you've, we have to go in by your spinal cord and if, if we hit your spinal cord, you know, you, you could be permanently as you are or worse. And and then I asked him, I remember asking him, do you know what you're doing? And he said, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I, I do this every day. And, I, and then I said, all right, let's go. And before I knew it, I was um, in anesthesia and woke up hours later and the surgery was done. And then you got the bad news. Yeah. And then... I was back at this, you know, back after post-op, and by that point, Elise was there. She'd flown back. She'd seen me when I came out of surgery, and she was by my side, and then a doctor came around and explained the situation. Um, he said, you know, you've broken C567. Um, he was actually pretty good, that doctor, in that he said, um, you know, we have we never know the outcomes of these situations, but right now you you know your diagnosis is paralysis and uh and that was pretty confronting to hear those words and that was sort of when i had that i would say that sort of why me moment and i can't believe this is happening and that was when i made the comment to elise that you know you're not you're not marrying i i i contacted that you're not marrying a vegetable basically hmm. was that moment almost a bit like a an out-of-body experience? Was it like you were there but it was happening to someone else? Was I've heard people say that that's the sort of experience when something like this happens. Was that what it was like for you, Sam? Yeah, well, it was, yeah. It's a good way to put it, yeah. It was, it just, it didn't feel real. It didn't, it just didn't, yeah, just you'd never imagine those things. No one imagines those things happening to themselves. And just finally about this whole tragic episode, I guess there comes a time when you realise that there's nothing you can do about it as much as you would like to do something about it. How long did it take for that moment for you to say, okay, well, this is my lot in life from here on in and I'm just going to make the best of what I've got? How long did that process take for you, Sam? I think I've been so process-driven through my whole life that it was just, it was kind of, I want to say, right away in that. I never got to, and I still haven't to this day, got to a point where I've gone, this is it for me. Like, it's 
this is it. I need to just stop and accept this. I keep chipping away at it every day and, you know, not knowing what the future holds, but knowing that I, I, I know what the future holds if I stop, put it that way. But, I mean, I've had up and down moments, you know. I've I've accepted it and chipped away at it, chipped away at it. And, and then, you know, you'll have a, a week or a few weeks where it just nothing feels like it's getting better, nothing nothing feels easy, nothing, everything's hard, and and then you start to sort of do, you know, the why me and this and that. And, but I would say since I got home from therapy on December 31st, 2016, that was sort of when my outlook on it changed and I felt like I could keep pushing forward and, and that kind of thing. When I, was in, when I was in the hospital, it was, you know, they used terms like quadriplegic and they, they didn't really give me a lot of hope or... And I just put up my guard, I would say, and just I was pretty op- optimistic the whole time, and so was my family. And it was probably around May when my brother, my brother came over, and he stayed with me for three months. And that I would say that changed everything because he just treated me like normal and did normal things with me. He was the one that got me back into the gym, and you know at that point I couldn't get myself out of the chair onto a bench really. Like he kind of had to help me and. And I think between him and, and Elise and my mom and dad, it just gave me so much purpose. Your single-mindedness and your sense of purpose are obviously very evident, and I'm sure they're an inspiration to a lot of people who are in similar situations. And for those of us who are fortunately not, then um, it's perspective for us, and we we um, appreciate everything that you've been able to um, talk about in the, in the last 15 minutes or so especially. Sam, we've spoken about the past. We've spoken about the present a little bit. I want to talk about the future when we come back with our final segment. Sam Willoughby is a very inspiring special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back with our final segment with Sam after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Our final segment with Olympic silver medalist Sam Willoughby, who's on the line from the United States. Uh, Sam, I think you're going to get your name up in lights, aren't you? Are they talking about naming a track after you? Yeah, they um, they've met. They're going to. Well, it's still going through some approval processes at the moment to find another. Like it was all on track to go, uh, building a big world-class BMX facility in Adelaide, actually right at the top of my street where I grew up, pretty much. but when they went to start building it, the clay wasn't what they had hoped it was, and it was going to be a lot more money to kind of bring dirt in and that kind of thing. So I think I believe they're looking for a new location, but it's still on the cards to uh, make the Sam Willoughby International BMX track uh, in that in Adelaide there somewhere. Yeah. Well, that'll be fantastic. But uh, before that, you'll probably be at the Emmy Awards or the Academy Awards. Tell us something about Cafe Willoughby. Now, you're branching into the media. You just be- are going to become a uh, a media megastar. What's Cafe Willoughby all about? Uh, that was just a fun little internet uh, podcast kind of show that myself and Tyler Brown, who is a good friend of mine, um, who I spoke about earlier runs the local track here and was my training partner for many years um he and i just decided that um i had a passion i have a passion for coffee and we um sat in front of my coffee machine one morning and did a little people were kind of complaining about the live feed of a bmx race that was going on and so we thought uh we're gonna we're watching it anyway we'll just go live on facebook and and start announcing it in front of the coffee machine and 
pretend we're at Cafe Willoughby and drink coffee and announce the racing over in Europe. So we did it one morning and it was a hit and everyone loved it. And, and then it turned into this show that we were doing every Monday night during the BMX season um, on Facebook Live and um, on YouTube. And uh, yeah, it was just a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of talk radio and listen to a lot of sporting shows and podcasts and that kind of thing. So kind of a little bit of free time on my hands and enjoyed doing that about a sport that I'm passionate about and obviously have connections to a lot of people in and we just started doing it and having fun with it and people seem to seem to enjoy it because there wasn't there's not much like it in BMX. So finally it's 2018 but if I'm talking to you in 2028 what do you think the things are that you will have achieved in your life over the next decade and, and what are you looking forward to achieving? Um, I'm really enjoying the coaching thing right now and I'm hoping to, you know, be by Elisa's side and give her the best preparation that possible and um and hopefully go to Tokyo with her and try to try to get her a gold medal and um and be by her side through that journey and support her as best I can. Um you know, we would love to have a family at some point. Obviously, not in the near future with her racing commitments and stuff, but I'd hope that, you know, if we had a conversation in 2028, I could be chasing around some little fellas and um, and just living a, a healthy, happy family life with Elise and our friends and, um, who knows, maybe, maybe even back in Adelaide. Um, and, yeah. Well, I hope that all of those things work out and I'm sure that everybody listening to this program today and you talked about podcasts I'm sure many people of various parts of the world have tuned into this podcast because it's a tragic story in lots of ways but it's an inspirational story in many ways as well. Sam I thank you for your time it's been a privilege to talk to you and we wish you and Elise well in your future endeavours whatever they might be. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Sam Willoughby, our very special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. And we'll be here same time next week with another great of Australian sport on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91